The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Heal and Isabel Hardman. So this week, various key figures in the COVID inquiry are giving evidence, including senior members of the Vote Leave team. Isabel, it's begun today. What have we heard so far when it comes to the new spate of evidence? So we've had evidence from um, Martin Reynolds, best known, I think, to, to all of us as Party Marty who was Boris Johnson's principal private secretary. And I mean, look, in lots of ways, and this is one of the the problems with the COVID inquiry so far, I think, is is nothing that surprising has emerged. But I think it's still damning, if if that makes sense. So, you know, in sort of pure newsworthiness, oh, the government was in chaos. Oh, Boris Johnson was quite casual about COVID to begin with. Oh, turns out Simon Case likes mouthing off about pretty much everyone and everything. Uh, on WhatsApp and seems to be the only person who hasn't turned his WhatsApp messages off. So, you know, none of that is a surprise. But I think the the critical mass of it all coming out in in one session and the picture painted by someone who, you know, what was at the heart of all of this is still very telling and will or could be very useful if, if it's used in the right way by the public inquiry. So, what we learnt, Boris Johnson wasn't briefed for 10 days in February 2020 on the emerging threat of COVID, something that his private secretary for public services, who's been giving evidence this afternoon, backed up saying that Johnson didn't really think COVID was a big deal to begin with. Now, we know that um, and we know that he wasn't taking it very seriously because he was sort of giggling in his, in his early press conferences, if you remember, and going around thinking he was the kind of I don't know, COVID Princess Diana shaking people's hands in hospital and boasting about it. But Reynolds ended up accepting that he probably should have briefed Johnson on this as though it was a sort of, you know, thought that's that's only just struck him. He apologised for the infamous BYOB party, saying he was deeply sorry. We also got a, a number of messages, exchanges between Dominic Cummings and Simon Case, Cabinet Secretary, uh, about Johnson changing direction every day and being unable to lead, um, in the words of Simon Case. And when the Prime Minister was pressing to lift lockdown restrictions, Case described the Prime Minister as advocating an approach that would be Trump-Bolsonaro-level mad and dangerous. Um, so clearly a lot of respect for the Prime Minister from the Cabinet Secretary there. And also entries from Patrick Valance, the chief scientific advisor at the time, from his uh, diaries that he wrote every evening about him and Chris Whitty trying to avoid doing a press conference on Dominic Cummings, where they were clear privately that he'd uh, broken the rules. And Valance described it as a, as a rambling press conference when it was actually happening. Yeah, I think in terms of what we learned today, I think the thing, the clip that will dominate tonight's news will be the moment when Martin Reynolds apologises publicly for the first time about that uh, May 20th, 2020 party, BYOB. Um, I think that will be the moment that kind of grabs the, the headlines. But I think the more interesting question is the one in which the disappearing WhatsApps and uh, Martin Reynolds was in a WhatsApp group which turned on disappearing messages two weeks before the inquiry was announced. And so I think this real debate coming up as it does at a time when there's the contrast of what's happening in Scotland, uh, where 
Humza Youssef is facing questions over what the Scottish government's policy was. I think this is the key question which is going to emerge in the coming uh, weeks or so is around public record keeping at the height of the pandemic. And those different approaches adopted by Holyrood and Westminster, uh, I think neither can be said to be uh, particularly ideal. Um, but that was one of the key points, I think, of, of today's lesson. Um, I think what also we saw was probably a taste of what's to come in terms of Martin Reynolds really representing a lot of the establishment thinking. He was talking around you know quite vague concepts like systems and you know the machine, the processes the government and I think you've all the frustration of Hugo Keith who's the lead counsel for the inquiry at one point asking him simply to speak speak clearly uh, and I think that that's going to be a recurring theme for those of us lucky to watch all of this is basically the way in which there's a tendency I think for people now to talk in retrospect about blaming the system etc uh, rather than individuals as Isabel says I mean a lot of this is now I think retrospectively validating the reporting at the time which painted a picture of chaos and confusion at the heart of government that seemed to really be borne out by the subsequent evidence uh, and of course, it sets us up nicely for the rest of the week. And the fact is, we meant to have Lee Kane today, but he's now been pushed back to tomorrow because Martin Reynolds' evidence simply overran into most of the afternoon. Uh, so it's going to be the, the story of the week, I'd say, in Westminster, as we are in Prague Parliament. Isabel, to James's point there, and one you mentioned, uh, which is that so far the evidence is corroborating lots of the reporting at the time. Is that the most important thing the inquiry can do? Are we learning much new from it in terms of new information? It's supposed to inform, obviously, future pandemic planning. Has there been much there yet? Because I think if you look at the newspapers alone, it seems to be a bit more about who didn't like who at the time than perhaps which scientific decision was the right one. I mean, that's so unusual in political reporting, isn't it, to focus on the psychodrama rather than the policymaking but look, I mean, I, I think the inquiry can be useful if it's not viewed and then forgotten afterwards just as a newsmaking machine. And in fact, I think this is one of the problems with our approach to public inquiries. And, you know, this is how we sort of been trained like dogs as journalists in that we, we really sort of do things habitually in the same way. Public inquiries shouldn't be about the, the news lines and the new revelations. They should be about the the themes and um, the patterns of behaviour within government that led to a crisis, a scandal, a disaster. And I, I think, you know, we get so excited by reporting uh, the day to day. And then we have a, you know, a lock in at the end of a public inquiry to go through the report. I'm thinking particularly of when I went to the Chilcot lock in uh, however many years ago that was. And, you know, we have a, a day when we report what was in the executive summary and there's press conferences from various people involved and then that really is it because it's no longer news but that's the point at which an inquiry is it's most powerful and important and when it's got recommendations that could actually start to be implemented and the interest just drops off and the accountability for implementing those recommendations which is the important thing then rather than sort of you know, as in the case of Chilcot, just asking Tony Blair the same question for the next 18,000 years. I don't think actually many of the lessons from the Iraq war inquiry have been implemented because firstly, by the time it came out, we were all sort of, oh, you know, this is old news. There's a few interesting quotes in there about, you know, I will be with you, whatever, from Blair to Bush. But actually, in terms of post-conflict planning, in terms of parliamentary consent, in terms of scrutiny, uh, in terms of information supplied to Parliament and to select committees at the time, none of those things that have actually changed after Chilcot. And um, I suspect that that could be the problem with the COVID inquiry in that what we're seeing emerging from this evidence 
are a lot of lessons about decision making, about long term planning, about structures, about hierarchies. And because they're not sort of, you know, who hated who, they get ignored. And when the report comes out, they get ignored. And actually, you know, the main players at the next pandemic, we're not going to have Simon Case and Dominic Cummings bitching about other people in a WhatsApp group. We're going to have other people who could fall into exactly the same patterns. And I think that's the that's the issue. It's not just the public inquiries themselves that can go on for years and cost millions and, and, and so on and so forth. It's also actually the way in which the Westminster system responds to them. Largely, it sees them as, as a way of sort of parking things for a while and then, oh, here comes a report, everyone's fled the stage already, so they don't need to take responsibility and we're too busy dealing with the you know current round of firefighting to, to implement the recommendations that could actually make government better. And then finally, the other story that's obviously still running on from last week is Israel-Palestine more generally, but I think in Westminster, Keir Starmer's handling of it. Now, over the weekend, the development is that Keir Starmer has now had several front benches suggest that they support a ceasefire in Gaza. As we discussed on Friday, Sadiq Khan, Andy Burnham, Anna Sawa have all added their names to the list of Labour politicians calling for one. And what's interesting is the Labour leadership are now saying that they're not planning to discipline anyone who's a frontbencher when it comes to calling for a slightly different position. There's a question as to when that pushes into something else. And we now have had the news just in the past few minutes that on the Tory side, they have sacked Paul Bristow as a PPS after the Tory MP called for a ceasefire. James, this is quite a contrast in terms of how the Labour leadership and the Tory leadership are handling these things. Yeah, as you say, Katie, we're keeping an up-to-date list on Coffee House. We've got 59 Labour MPs out of 199 who've now called for a ceasefire, including uh, more than 10 frontbenchers. So a big, big challenge, I think, to Keir Starmer's authority. Does one suspend collective responsibility or not? As you say, this afternoon, um, The Telegraph published a story saying that Paul Bristow, who is an MP for Peterborough, which is a large Muslim uh, constituency, it's tw- there's almost twice as many Muslims in Peterborough with a, a population of 12.2% compared to the overall British population identifying as Muslim of 6.5%. So understandably in that light, perhaps then um, he would choose to back a ceasefire. Uh, only a few hours after that, we have now learned that he has been sacked from his position as a PPS. And obviously this is intended to be a real contrast. Uh, the idea, I think, that number 10 will presumably think that they can, you know, forward to lose Paul Bristow and maybe a couple of other sort of MPs who might be harbouring private concerns about a ceasefire. And it's obviously a warning to anyone else thinking about going on the same route. And obviously this will be an interesting contrast, which number 10 will be key to play up as suggesting that the Prime Minister can able to impose discipline on his side, whereas Labour, you know, for all the talk of moving on from the Corbyn era, they haven't really actually. And, you know, the fact that a third of almost of Keir Starmer's party is now against him on this issue would suggest there are problems, certainly on the Labour side. Isabel, just finally, do you think there is a damaging contrast for Keir Starmer, the fact that one side is happy to ultimately discipline? Or Labour would argue, of course, that this is a conscience matter and so forth, but it does raise questions over how a Labour government would act on foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be daft to make matters of defence uh, a conscience matter because it's, you know, it was one of the kind of the, the ultimate and primary responsibilities of a government. It's not a kind of a life sciences issue but it is really difficult for Starmer and he's as ever made it slightly more difficult for himself as well so really the only option he has now after he riled everyone with his LBC interview which I think is is the thing is, as you wrote on Coffee House last week Katie was the thing that really triggered the extreme angst within the party 
he um, the only option he really had open to him is the one he seems to be taking, not as proactively as he as he should be, I think, but basically saying, look, you know, these front benches, you can disagree with me, voice your concerns, but it's not going to change the party line. I mean, my understanding is that he is utterly resolute on not calling for a ceasefire and calling for a pause and continuing to say that Israel has the right to defend itself and that that's not going to change. And so he is... He's going to maintain that and that neither he nor David Lammy or anyone else is, is going to switch tack regardless of how many front benches sign early day motions or whatever. Now, he's got lots of cover to take that approach, I think, and it would make him appear kind of magnanimous and as though he's you know confident to, enough to, to, to carry on leading over the noise. And I think there's a, you know, the, uh, people who've been in government for Labour, and there's, there's not that many of them left, are saying, look, this is, this is the difference between people who are really, really serious about government in the sense that they know how hard it's going to be and people who are still finding the reality of governing quite a daunting prospect. Why I say he's made it difficult for himself is that at PMQs uh, last week, he ended up asking Sunak, uh, Rishi Sunak, does the Prime Minister agree that during this grave crisis, the House must strive to speak with one voice in condemnation of terror in support of Israel's right to self-defence and so on and so forth? Now, if he hadn't talked about speaking with one voice, he'd have much firmer ground on which to, to, to stand and say, I don't mind other people in my party speaking with different voices. But he has, uh, as ever, rather sort of boxed himself in. So it, it is, a, you know, it's a difficult position for him to be in. It's always difficult in Labour on this topic, but I think he's probably made it a little bit harder. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening. <laughs> 